Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another week here on the Desi VC podcast. This is your host, Akash Bhatt, and I bring you leading investors in India and uncover investing secrets with them. We took a week off last week here on the podcast, but we're back at it yet again with another super guest. This is the first time we're going to have someone come in and talk to us about fintech on the podcast. So I'm super excited to share this episode with you all. But before we do that, since we're talking about fintech today, do check out Piggy. Piggy is a fintech solution helping couples and individuals make investments in mutual funds in India. It's a one-stop shop solution to invest, manage your portfolio and track returns. So do visit piggy.co.in, that's P-I-G-G-Y dot C-O dot I-N, or download the app on the Play Store or iOS App Store to learn more. Now on to this week's episode. I'm super delighted to have Melissa Frackman join me on the podcast today. She's the founder and managing partner of Emphasis Ventures, EMVC, a venture capital fund investing in early stage fintech startups in India. Melissa brings over 15 years of experience participating in India's digital revolution to bridge worlds for entrepreneurs and startups. Named on the global fintech power list by Innovate Finance, she's led early stage investments in Asia, support a new market strategy and built partnerships worth over a billion dollars for 15 of the Fortune 100 companies. I'm super excited to have her on the show and share all of her investing secrets within FinTech today. So without wasting any more time, let's jump into the episode and listen to Melissa. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Delighted to have you here. How are you and how has 2020 been for you so far? Thank you, Akash. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, 2020 has been uh, probably similar to many others. Um, what an interesting time we're all living in and very much, you know, staying focused and inspired by our portfolio companies who are being extremely resilient and creative uh, during this major upheaval. I like how you brought up that part of resilient. Now, in spite of everything that we've witnessed unfold in this year so far, hopefully the worst is behind us. In your opinion, is there a silver lining unique to India during this period? Um, well, not to minimize very concrete, tangible suffering of many people, both on the health and economic side. I think that the kind of further digitization for another 10, 20, 30 million last mile individuals in terms of online service delivery or use of mobile phones to avail of household services is a really interesting outcome. I totally agree. Um, with, within FinTech as well, I guess this is the right time to leverage tailwinds to continue building robust infrastructures for contactless payments, lending, digital banking, and others alike. Because for a long time, there was a pushback saying customers are not ready as yet. Now, you mentioned this as well, and I want to bring this example of e-commerce, which is booming right now because offline retail stores were shut for a long time. And even here in the US, the numbers have gone up from 16 to 27%, uh, according to an article that was just published this morning on TechCrunch. And mm-hmm. a few other examples within the India context include purchase of essentials online, digital bill payments, digital lending, and the online stock trading uh, segments as well. Have you been seeing that personally yourself? And outside of just the essentials, 
that are being purchased offline or online what are some of the other segments in your opinion that have perhaps seen tailwind and you've kept an eyes open from a vc perspective yeah i mean you you covered it in terms of basic household needs are being delivered more so digitally right now um of course this isn't like the lockdown hit and then all of a sudden everybody created these services they're things that have been existing and available for a long time but adoption beyond the most digitally savvy tier one two city urban indians in the country had been relatively slow a lot of indians have access to broadband data and smartphones you know thanks to reliance geo's proliferation but had been using the their phones mainly as a tv to watch bollywood and cricket and lockdown was kind of the push for adoption for many other things even as simple as just p2p payments to pay kind of helpers and delivery folks uh companies like denzo or our portfolio company nikki who does a lot of these household transactions um with a fully vernacular language voice commerce platform have seen a major uptick in growth in terms of adoption things like bill payments recharge as basics but in terms of delivering of basic groceries and essential goods um payments donations etc as well now that's a great point i want to probe further on this and i promise i will but before we do that i want to come to your story now how did you end up where you are today and take us through that journey and perhaps highlight a few landmark events that have kind of shaped your life and career so far Sure, I am very fortunate. I feel very grateful that my um career trajectory has really been during the same time of this past 15 years of of sort of India's digital um major economic rise. So I very early on in my life I ended up um in India traveling. This was right when microfinance was taking off in the country and everybody was talking about it as this Panacea solution for poverty um got very interested in the macro context for that and how the world was working with and looking at what was happening in these last mile villages and urban centers across India ended up even deferring university and working in microfinance on the ground in Delhi and surrounding areas one thing led to another um and this ended up being my kind of educational trajectory looking at global capital markets as it relates to kind of economic development in emerging markets all of this started to lead to looking at how the private sector um was pushing these things along and the complicated relationship um between finance and development um long story short after a few different roles that were more economics driven ended up working with some of the largest US companies in the world on their India strategy um and investments including leading to um heading up financial services at the US India Business Council this kind of major industry body consortium of some of the largest global companies and institutional investors both across the US and in India spearheaded as a passion project by many of the most notable CEOs in the market and through that um started to see connected dots even further in terms of um how things were shaping up in India uh during that time was a very exciting moment Aadhaar had just been implemented and there were discussions around the development of NPCI um and UPI and that was a pivotal moment in terms of leading some of the industry working groups 
that were involved in providing global inputs into development of India's national payment system um, and starting to see how fast India moving was moving, in fact, even compared to the U.S. Um, and it was sort of a hint of starting to believe in this, what has become basically a career thesis for me in terms of India being far ahead in many ways um, and that the complexities of India provide a great opportunity for global learning. Um, all of this kind of led to a handful of operating roles, including Indian um, e-commerce companies, Omado, going global and um, helping to spearhead some of the new markets, setting up launching new markets operations after some acquisitions around the world, um, but always came back to working with some of the largest Fortune 500 companies, helping them think through both innovation in terms of engaging with startups and emerging disruptive technology in their space, but also across borders, translating the very grassroots language of what was happening in India um, to these corporate boardrooms and vice versa for some of the largest payments, ride-sharing e-commerce companies in the world. And as I was doing all of this, um, there were some great early stage companies sort of about five years ago that I was meeting and would shop them around to global institutions for partnerships, et cetera, and started to see that there was a, this inherent mismatch between what was happening in India um, at the very early stages and how exciting it was and the risk appetite for kind of corporate development and M&A activity only at the later stages. And EMVC as a fund was born out of solving this mismatch of being able to work alongside the absolute most innovative entrepreneurs that are moving the needle forward for India's you know, 500 million plus new to digital users and consumers um, and some of the largest global platforms for FinTech um, that have an opportunity to learn from and build the right partnerships and businesses um, alongside the technology that's coming out of India to benefit the rest of the world. Oh, thanks for that background. Clearly, you've had an extensive exposure and experience within finance and the development of the fintech ecosystem in India. Now, one thing that you mentioned there, and I'd like to highlight at this point, is India being more advanced in the fintech ecosystem as such, globally speaking. What are some of the observations you made between India and other emerging markets that lead you to say that we've got a more robust and advanced ecosystem compared to the others? Sure. I mean, India, when I explain to global foreign U.S. investors um, or others about India, I often get everyone to shed their preconceived notions, at least attempt to, and have them think about India as, as a Europe equivalent in terms of completely separate cultures, languages, socioeconomic um, segments, etc., all within one country. There's so many kind of micro economies within India. And so many of those different microeconomies on their own are perfect corollaries to product environments in other markets around the world. Brazil, for instance, is extremely diverse um, with a large kind of poor population that is still underserved. Brazil has the same population as UP. And while they're not, you know, perfectly matched, if you can build and scale an app for parts of kind of the hardest segments across UP. Um, there's many things that it could work in other markets. Um, um, so for India, some of the recent FinTech developments are some of the leading reasons why India 
is a great hub for global markets and especially emerging markets to learn from. For instance, real-time payments and the UPI system is particularly progressive in terms of um, linking on top of a unique ID and enabling what is essentially a public utility for um, any application that needs to be built on top of it. The fact that it's interoperable and connects to other layers of India stack, as it's called, um, is something that many global markets are learning from. Second, just core distribution model and innovation around product distribution and services distribution is something that India leads. To be able to distribute, whether it's an app or an actual physical good across last mile um, India with very limited infrastructure uh, and connectivity is something that many other countries and companies within countries struggle with. And there are a lot of learnings there as well. Um, thirdly, India is just extremely mobile and that's become even more so over the past two, three years with broadband and um, the cost of smartphones and adoption rising. Um, and many other markets in the world are starting and sort of following where that adoption is. India, in terms of mobile penetration, is where China was about 10 years ago. And there's at least 10 countries in the world that are sort of fast-growing, very um, tech-forward emerging markets that are about 10 years behind where India is in terms of per capita mobile adoption. Well, there are a lot of great insights that you gave in that segment there. And one of the things that I want to touch upon here is the current financial ecosystem within India. When you look at certain markets or certain verticals within the whole fintech ecosystem as such, we see the bundling and unbundling of services within these, right? Where do you believe we are in that whole context? Are we in the phase of bundling or unbundling? And how do yeah. you see that playing out? India is just at the beginning years of a bundling and convergence into large tech platforms starting to offer many of these fintech services. Um, I'm not a fan of the term tech fin, as many people call it, but that's, uh, you know, a very buzzy Indian um, industry term in terms of these large tech players starting to adopt financial services. Um, but it's still very early days. So that is to say, yes, Amazon uh, has a robust lending program. Ola's financial services push is really interesting as it relates to things like insurance, micro insurance for drivers already having issued two, three million policies. Um, Google is, you know, recently announced that in addition to the major success of Google Pay in India, it's getting into digital banking. Um, of course, Reliance Geo has a whole host of different fintech applications that it offers. Um, Paytm beyond its core distribution has started to get into things like mutual funds and recently as of last week when this is recorded direct stock trading. All of that is happening but it's still very early days and, and founders shouldn't get discouraged from the opportunity of building discrete products with very loyal user bases that solve core needs um, and can really refine uh, a specific product within any one of these segments. It's not sort of a done deal that everything becomes part of a super app yet. However, between this trend on the consumer side, as well as um, new trends starting to emerge around open banking and fintech infrastructure being built on the B2B or enterprise or, uh, or backend infrastructure side, all of these things present a very interesting moment for the next few years in India in terms of both bundling, but also um, deeper integrations between large tech platforms, telcos, 
um, payments and then specific uh, financial services. That's a great point. You make this great point about how larger tech companies like Google and Amazon have entered the space and also the rise of startups and the amount of funding they're perhaps also you know, raised as a result of that interest. Now, one notable stat that I came across was that Indian fintech companies have raised $1.47 billion in just the first half of this year, which is a 60% increase over the same period in 2019. However, the biggest complaint, and I'm eager to understand your stance on this as well, is that early stage companies don't seem to be seeing that money as much as later stage ones do. I mean, I think great example here is Paytm, which has taken bulk of the funding um, across across all of these segments. In fact, less than 10% of the total funding went to early stage fintech startups since 2019. What's the underlying risk here that VCs are seeing and how does one address that going forward? Yeah, from where we sit, um, there's not really a problem with that per se, because a lot of the best Indian fintech founders at the early stages have been getting funding um, without too much trouble in terms of a lack of capital availability. And so just by virtue of kind of how large the rounds are, that breakdown makes quite a bit of sense. Um, of course, beyond the core early stage risk of any venture investing, uh, this, this trend that we were just discussing in terms of convergence of some of the larger players dabbling, dip, dabbling and dipping in their toes to various segments of fintech does make some investors shy away from taking very early bets on teams that are building niche financial services for niche seg- consumer segments, or conversely, early stage founders that are trying to go after a full stack consumer play for across the market. So the fact that there's both real and then partly a perceived um, challenge of basically everybody competing with Geo or everybody competing with Google, um, has some early stage investors that are sector agnostic moving away from fintech into other areas that are particularly popular right now, such as logistics or gaming. Um, as a sector focused investor who is extremely long fintech, and um, this is all we do, we are completely fine with put, keeping our heads down, being very strong partners and hands on partners to our founders, and kind of riding out these various perception issues, which move quite quickly in India. Like every quarter, there's sort of different things that are popular and sentiments that the broader industry has. That's wonderful. Now, the opportunity for digital finance as such is super undervalued, in my opinion, in some cases, even underpublicized. For instance, fintech within India itself is driving an evolution in SaaS business models, starting with vertical software markets and payments is perhaps just the beginning, right? Now, over Mm -hmm. the last few years, we've seen software businesses or software business models, which have evolved from on-premise to subscription bottom-up to now include fintech. Each step along the way has unlocked new markets and opportunities within the software industry. Now, that's a great example how fintech can really unlock a vertical as such. Now, in your opinion, where are the opportunities within fintech more specifically under three categories, which is urban India, middle India, and rural India? So I like how you've broken it down. And even within those three categories, there are, of course, many other subcategories. To me, the, um, for the tier one urban India, 
um, the opportunity that's most exciting, A, is just to deliver absolutely stellar world-class product experiences that drive convenience, um, new insights, solve interesting pain points for consumers and delight them. Uh, the average digitally savvy, semi-affluent urban Indian has a lot of options in terms of apps and conveniences in their life already. So to be able to deliver a fintech service on the consumer side to them, it has to be um, excellent. I believe actually the bar is much higher in India for that particular segment than many other markets in the world in terms of how convenient and easy and assisted so many things aspects of people's financial lives already are um, this is where several of the very well-funded neobanks um, that have yet to launch are, are targeting for this next kind of tier two city India that has some income but uh, not not in the kind of affluent urban segment there are very interesting opportunities that are tricky to reach for startups in terms of um, improving people's lives, but not distracting them with anything, absolutely anything unnecessary. So several of our portfolio companies are serving households in this segment, which is a very large part of the Indian economy with um, different ways that enhance commerce, um, enhance their ability to save, never mind banking, but actually start to save beyond gold and cash and real estate occasionally. Um, into diversifying into financial assets. Um, this larger segment in particular has abysmally low insurance penetration because they're not part of the urban India that has um, employer-based insurance. And so most of them either have to pay for health, health or other um, incremental expenses out of pocket. And so there's very exciting opportunities to build insurance for this market. Um, and because payments is already solved, a lot of these, for consumers, a lot of these, um, this segment are in the informal sector or own micro or small businesses. And there's still lots to do in terms of serving MSMEs um, as it relates to financing, supply chain, inventory, payments, et cetera. And then for rural, it's an interesting question. There is a robust social infrastructure in India for instance, the microfinance institutions, various government schemes like Jandan Yojana, which was the uh, zero balance bank account openings that happened a few years ago, um, Ayushman Bharat for insurance and health, for example. But there is still a lot to do in terms of bringing the digitization that has happened and sort of swept the country for the top most digital affluent 100 million people to the rest of India. Rural India is an 800 million um, size population. And so while this is much more challenging and founders absolutely need to be rooted in that market and have a very real concrete on the ground understanding of that user, there is so much to do and so many things that are going to happen over the next five to 10 years in terms of developing the sector. One of our portfolio companies, Gromcover, is building a digital insurance brokerage um, to reach, to build digital pipes to reach this last mile rural user with great traction and success so far um, in terms of things that these farmers and rural households actually need first, um, getting them used to availing of these services digitally and then building the platform through which they can access other financial services. Now for that last part, which includes rural and middle India, are customers ready? What are 
your portfolio company is conveying to you in terms of the traction that they're saying is the biggest challenge education or adoption or do both of these actually depend on macroeconomic factors so i'd say from a macroeconomic perspective the indian consumers at all aspects of these segments are ready but the products and services that they're being offered has to be ready for them and perfectly custom tailored to what their needs are and meet them where they are whether that is like nikki what I, who i mentioned which enables all of these fintech digital transactions to happen seamlessly in local language in punjabi gujarati etc um through voice which is kind of the local like more comfortable flow versus using a phone or our portfolio company carva who's who enables um these blue collar workers to avail of services through where they would be getting some of their income and you know enables them through an app to instead of going to their um whoever them you know paying them to ask for a loan to be able to have this really interesting earned salary flexible adjustable um experience through an app um and we're saying that customers are absolutely ready the indian consumer once these things is extremely technologically and numerically literate and so there's there's lots to do and the education is part of what the product experience should be it has to be an assisted uh educational experience to really work and scale so is it the responsibility of the government to really bring about this educational change or do they have to work with startups and every other stakeholder here to ensure that this adoption is faster than it ever was before and if so how do you see that playing out i think it's the opportunity of of startup founders if they want to build something that transforms one segment of this market um it's both their responsibility and a major opportunity to build something that has that component of improving people's lives while educating them on how to use it um that's where the really kind of game changing pain point solving solutions lie concurrently the government digital payments initiatives and other kind of awareness campaigns for various digital things certainly help and can help accelerate but what we've seen time and time again just like paytm during demonetization days is the companies already have to be in market and ready to go when one of these things happens so they can't wait around for everyone to get educated for the market to change policies to happen to build they need to be kind of skin in the game sleeves rolled up iterating and be there when when everything happens let's get i wanted to actually shift focus at this point and talk about upi because you brought this up in the earlier part of the podcast as well now we've obviously seen the impact of upi within india take a look at the numbers itself they speak for themselves if you compare just numbers of july 2020 which is re- released recently by ncpi upi saw 1.5 billion transactions amounting to 2.9 lakh crores which is roughly 45 billion if i math is right up from mm-hmm. 2.61 lakh crores in june 2020 now this really indicates a massive adoption of mobile based digital payments within india during the pandemic and the v-shaped rebound comes at the back of a steep fall in the months of the lockdowns in march and april which really saw a dip in the numbers you know there were 25% dip in the overall transaction volume compared to pre-covid numbers 
how have you seen startups leverage this infrastructure to really build businesses? And if you can really highlight some of the innovation that you have seen, not maybe perhaps the startups, but the innovation, which perhaps is very unique to India, and you haven't seen that anywhere across the globe. Yeah, I mean, the innovation with this, with UPI, is at all stages of it. Um, many folks, if they're listening from abroad, couldn't even fathom of the fact or don't grasp the fact that this is direct bank to person, bank to merchant, you know, government to person payments in real time with zero cost to the consumer. Um, that, it, that on its own is quite innovative. And the fact that the technology is strong enough to handle the volumes and speed at which this all happens uh, is innovative. And the fact that it's interoperable enough that so many different companies, both you know, from a Google to a four-person startup sitting in Nagpur to be able to innovate on top of UPI, that flexibility of the platform is also quite innovative. We're seeing use cases across many different things. Um, you know, for example, there's several apps working on savings products for people to move, again, from just holding cash or holding their basic bank accounts to like a flexible fixed deposit higher interest rate product that maybe is available to them, but they wouldn't be able to use it. It wouldn't be convenient. They're not comfortable or used to saving. Through UPI, um, these consumers can easily transfer money if they get paid back you know, by somebody in their community or a friend, 500 rupees, 100 rupees, can quickly, without any fees, any fuss, um, transfer that into their fixed deposit and start to build savings for them in the future and their families. And now, something that just came out a couple weeks ago uh, that was long in the works from NPCI in terms of automatic payment, recurring payments for UPI, it enables another 500 interesting use cases. For instance, insured tech startups are now able to you know, withdraw premium through UPI on an automatic basis monthly. Um, or these kinds of savings apps can do automatic payments in both directions, as well as personal finance management, PFM apps, be able to start to integrate kind of fast payments in both directions, both debit and credit for their users. No, I guess as they say, what we have right now really leaves us with a lot to be desired. And that's true about any opportunity and within the fintech and the UPI space, I think it gives you a lot more to really play around with and build the next layer of fintech infrastructure for the country as such. Moving on and perhaps related to the last question with respect to your investments in firm, historically speaking, financial companies have been valued differently than traditional tech companies as such. How do you Firstly, assess deals that you come across and what metrics do you set or what are, what are some of the metrics that really stand out and matter to you the most? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely look at similar kinds of metrics as other early stage investors that are more general. And then there's, of course, several sector specific kinds of metrics. Generally, we care a lot about um, how fast the company can move. This market, India FinTech, is so expensive extremely dynamic where there's something new happening every week. And so aside from the team being stellar, and that's by the way, not just pedigree, but actually sort of the people, 
how world-class are they in terms of thinking about the product, et cetera. We look to see that even in the very earliest days of the company, the, the team is able to move, iterate fast, learn about what's happening week to week in their market and in the ecosystem, and then go back and build. Um, so that flexibility and moving fast is very important. We look to see that founders and teams have a very deep understanding of the space in which they're operating. Uh, because this is such a complex and somewhat crowded space, there's you know, a recent report uh, from Adichie talked about thousands of fintech startups in the Indian ecosystem building, 400 only in wealth tech, for example. That doesn't mean that the company needs to be obsessed with their competitors. In fact, that could be a distraction, but they need to have a very keen awareness of the landscape in which they're operating and where their product or service is gonna move the needle forward and improve. Um, and you'd be surprised how rare that is um, in terms of the scan of the market. And then, of course, the technology. We like to see core innovation, whether that's in product or distribution, um, where it's something that is both innovative, ideally with some kind of specific IP that's proprietary to the company, and as well, and this is um, kind of our personal preference, is that it's not a copycat. So we're um, turned off a bit when we hear this is Chime for India or something else, you know, rather than understanding what specifically this very unique market needs and building for that, um, or having an awareness of what's being built in India that can really move the needle forward in other markets around the world. And then specifically to financial services, um, the right mix of companies understanding the regulatory environment and all of the kind of uphill things they'll need to succeed within their regulated environment is important. Um, if they are integrating with banks, which many fintech startups are, they need to have either traction or a very clear plan, believable plan of how they will kind of earn those partnerships in a sticky, meaningful way. Um, this you know, specifically applies lots of companies in Delhi and Bangalore don't have kind of a networker experience in Mumbai. And so building those ties with the large incumbent financial institutions is a challenge for many of them at the early days. Um, and then finally, this is a subtle, subtle point and hard to articulate, but we like to see companies and founders that really understand, even if it's not a social impact startup, or one that's targeting social good as their core mission, that they understand sort of how their product is going to improve the lives of users or business owners if it's B2B um, and net net make things better uh, for the country as they grow. You touched upon this, you talk about financial institutions as such also being a competition. How are startups looking at that? Is that an opportunity for them to see it and say, hey, you know what, if I do well, it's an opportunity for me to partner with traditional financial institutions and really scale with the help of their network and the distribution that they have, uh, or also maybe an opportunity for them to get acquired perhaps, or are they viewing it from a perspective of this is stifling competition, this is going to stifle my growth, this is going to be incredibly difficult for me to really scale, especially in the digital payment side and on the lending side, how are you seeing startups looking at this problem and addressing it perhaps, maybe from within your portfolio or in general, what are you seeing across the uh, landscape? It's a major opportunity. Um, the legacy institutions in India, whether it's the banks or 
any, you know, the AMCs, wealth management, the large insurers, they are not, despite how many innovation programs and incubators they launch, they're not directly competing with startups out there. And so they have no choice. And I'd say this is even more in India than in the U.S. or other markets. Uh, they, have, they have no choice but to partner and be great partners to, to startups. And so startups recognize that this is an opportunity for them. And if they take anything less than a collaborative approach, it often backfires for them. Um, in particular, banks like ICICI um, and RBL have been particularly forward-leaning in terms of opening up their API stacks, building out different programs to incubate and work with startups that are quite founder friendly. And so we've been delighted to see over the past year a real evolution in terms of how some of the large incumbents work with startups. Um, and they're not all startup friendly. For instance, some of the large insurers have been quite challenging in terms of um, offering policies that work, group policies that work for insure tech startups and changing prices last minute. Um, in ways that aren't particularly founder friendly. And so founders also talk to one another and start to surmise which incumbents are the ones that make sense to partner with and which ones aren't. And so the whole ecosystem is moving toward um, this interesting community of very forward-leaning institutions. And at the highest levels, even kind of at the chairman level of most of the large financial institutions in, in India, they understand what a great opportunity this is for them as well. That's a great point that you make. Now, you're one of the very few VC firms that primarily focus on the fintech space in India. How are you adding value to your portfolio companies, especially during times like this, where there's a pandemic in place? What kind of support are you extending to your portfolio companies and overall in general as well, beyond just financial and capital that you bring to the table? What are other ways that EMVC is adding value to the portfolio companies? We are very hands-on partners to the portfolio companies um, and honestly aims to be so even for entrepreneurs across the ecosystem beyond our portfolio. Particularly for us, something that's unique is that we really focus on this um, cross-border space. And for our portfolio companies, we are their advocates, hype people, eyes and ears, research arm for what's happening in the global fintech ecosystem that relates to what they're building. So we build a lot of partnerships, events, um, meetings, learnings between U.S. fintechs and our Indian startups, um, as well as kind of virtual pitch sessions and partnership opportunities, et cetera, business development opportunities with institutions around the world. We're out in Latin America and Canada, um, in Europe and Dubai, working with the largest fintech investors and companies in those spaces, letting them know all of the great things that are happening on the ground in India, including with our portfolio companies, and then helping to build those bridges, which take many years to cultivate. It's not something where the founder can do one Zoom meeting and it's all sorted, of course. Um, beyond that, we end up spending a lot of time helping our portfolio companies with kind of market positioning, business development, and strategy. Um, as well as kind of, of course, things around hiring, partnerships, maybe M&A activity as they start to grow a little bit. And during this time of the pandemic, it's really, we've aimed to serve them by being a general sounding board, as well as a bit of firefighting for things that would have happened that didn't happen because of 
um, the lockdown and kind of helping revise and move quickly and bring some resources to be able to adjust strategies. And we've been very excited with how um, flexible and agile they've been. That's great. On, and on that note, I think we can jump into my last segment, which is a rapid fire. And as I previously had spoken to you, it's fairly simple. It's super non-controversial. And <laughs> it's more to really dig into the investor persona that, that you have and give a glimpse into what that is to our listeners. So if you're ready, I'm going to start shooting some questions at you. Sure, let's go. Awesome. Now, how have you evolved as a person in this last few years of being in venture capital and in the whole fintech ecosystem in India? So two parts. For the fintech ecosystem in India, my long-term belief that I've held for over a decade that what is happening in digital India is one of the most interesting economic stories of our generation globally has only strengthened. I am super bullish and have doubled down and tripled down time and time again uh, on the innovation that's happening in India and why it's so important for the stories and the technology to proliferate um, to other markets and also for Indian entrepreneurs to understand how pivotal what they're doing is to the global ecosystem in fintech. Um, so in the past couple of years, that has only strengthened in terms of resolve. On the somewhat more personal front, EMVC for me has been a founder journey. Um, I'm an entrepreneur in terms of building this firm, building our team, et cetera. And for me, it's been a very exciting entrepreneurial journey over the past two and a half years um, to build this and get it to where it is. Uh, I am more resilient and even more comfortable with uncertainty and um, have really been able to further work on my own kind of decision-making capacity in terms of being able to move very fast uh, through the entrepreneurial journey um, to be able to build this and excited to keep going. That's great. What is one thing that you'd like to change about the VC ecosystem in India? Um, that I'd like founders in India to understand that they select and curate the mix of their investors and their cap table just as much as the other way around. It's not just investors and founders picking them. I often see founders get stuck uh, with cap tables that they don't find as supportive as they want to or kind of awkward dynamics. Um, and sometimes that's kind of a confidence or lack of awareness issue. Um, it's really for the best entrepreneurs in the country, they also pick the VCs that will be with them for the long run. And that relates to having, making sure that there are diverse voices. And I don't mean just gender, I mean sort of across sector expertise and across stage, uh, stages of investors, et cetera, um, mixed to be on their team as they're on their very long and uphill journey. I agree. Now, what should new journalist investors or parachute VCs know about the fintech ecosystem within India? That's a good question. I'd say that generalist investors that are looking at fintech in India should challenge themselves to really try to go beyond the hype. Um, there's a very high sort of noise to signal ratio in some parts of the fintech ecosystem um, and certain segments or buzzwords that are hot one day don't necessarily translate to real monetization or business models that will be sustainable over the long run, A. And B, uh, I think that 
global investors, particularly foreign investors looking at India, need to do away with their Excel list checklist of corollaries, you know, different, the Monzo for this or the um, Cash App for this in India, because the ecosystem has evolved and the regulatory environment and the consumer base are too different, that it, those things just don't make sense. And so having local partners that can really work with you and align in terms of helping to guide what will be local innovation uh, is very important as well. I like that. I agree with it. Now, is there a sub-vertical within the fintech space that you're incredibly bullish on going forward? I'm incredibly bullish about um, new distribution channels, meaning I don't think that everything all of a sudden is going to converge around Google or Geo at once. I think that there are really interesting ways that fintech products, you know, the core fintech products, which basically fall into lending, saving, personal finance, which is sort of slash wealth tech um, and insure tech, ways that those products can be extremely um, user-centric, but actually reach new users and expand access. And I think that there are another hundred very exciting companies yet to be built that will solve the way these things hit virality and hit kind of real meaningful distribution across very specific niche segments of different markets across India. That's very interesting. That's one to keep a lookout for. Now, what is one piece of advice that you want to give startups who are trying to fundraise at this period of time? I would advise startup founders to really try to cut out some of the noise, maybe spend a little less time on social media in terms of hearing what everybody else is saying, and get a bit closer to your user and a little bit farther away from what you think the VCs want to hear. Um, we see a lot of fintech startups in the market, hundreds and hundreds a month. Um, and the duplication of what everybody is saying is immense in terms of everybody sort of converging around the same messaging. And I think that's a bit of a group think thing that is a, is a trap for founders to fall into. And so I'd say dig into your users, your product, even yourself and your own personal style and figure out how to tell investors and potential funders uh, what makes you unique, why it's working, um, and why specifically this is different. In such a crowded, um, active, busy, exciting market, that's what's really going to stand out. That's a great point. And my last question to you, and it's super light, uh, is there a favorite book, movie, or a song that you have? <laughs> or all I'm a big jazz fan. So during this quarantine while working, I've been, been listening to a lot of Kamasi Washington, Vijay Iyer, um, Robert Glasper type music. Um, and for friends that are not involved with India in the US, I always recommend that they watch Gully Boy for a taste of modern Mumbai. I love that. That's a wonderful note to end the podcast on. Gully Boy is one of my favorite movies of 2019. I think it was phenomenal. Um, totally. Glad that you brought that up on the podcast. Um, I, I need to start asking VCs more 
questions like these because it really brings out the fun side of their personality which often gets ignored on my podcast as such so i'm going to make yeah. make sure i'm going to ask more of these kind of questions but thank you so much for your time Marissa. it was a pleasure having you and uh, appreciate all the insights that you provided within the fintech ecosystem in india and um, the future is definitely bright and i love the work that you guys are doing and if there are any startups out there how how can they get in touch with you Thanks, Akash. Um, would look forward to hearing from startups and always happy to brainstorm even outside of fundraising discussions. Um, you can email us at hello, H-E-L-L-O, at em.vc, or there's a form on our website, em.vc, uh, to get in touch, or follow us at emvc on social media. Awesome. Thank you so much again. It was a pleasure having you, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much, Melissa, for being on the show and sharing your journey as a fintech investor in India. We took away lots of great insights and I'm looking forward to having you back soon to explore other verticals within fintech as well. So if you all enjoyed that episode, do leave us a rating and review and go ahead and share it with people who you think would benefit from listening to the podcast. We really appreciate your support and by doing so, you will really help more people discover the podcast as well. And before we conclude this week's episode, do also check out Piggy. Piggy is a fintech solution helping couples and individuals make investments in mutual funds in India. It's a one-stop shop to invest, manage your portfolio and track returns. So visit piggy.co.in or download the app on the Play Store or iOS App Store to learn more. I'll see you again next week here on the podcast with another great guest. So until then, stay safe everybody and continue to keep hustling.